You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT Advisory Council President, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I am speaking today with Dr. Michael Koval. Dr. Koval is Executive Director of the Center for Human Identification at the University of North Texas Health Science Center at Fort Worth. He holds a PhD in genetics and a master's in forensic molecular biology, both from George Washington University. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and a member of the International Society for Forensic Genetics and the Texas Forensic Science Commission. Dr. Koble has also been generous enough to share his expertise as a lecturer, and very good lecturer indeed, here at OLLI at UNT with a fascinating lecture on the story behind solving the mystery of the two missing Romanov children, a mystery that has inspired books, movies, and quite a few imposters over the years. Welcome, Dr. Koble. Hello. Thank you, Susan, for inviting me. Oh, thank you for joining us. I know for a fact you've got an incredibly busy schedule, and I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us about what it is that you do. Now, you are a forensic scientist, and I used to watch the television series Bones. I loved it, where the forensic anthropologist was busy investigating murders with her sidekick FBI special agent, Celie Booth. Is that pretty close to what your average day is like? It is exactly just <laughs> like my day. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are quite a few differences between the television portrayal of forensics and actual real-life forensics. Now, I will say on shows like CSI and so forth, the laboratories have the actual same instruments that we use, but they're there pretty much just for show because I will tell you, you can't really develop a DNA profile in the time it takes for a commercial break. It usually <laughs> takes a little bit more time than that. But And plus, we don't have all the fancy blue lighting. It seems like blue lighting is the choice of lights in the forensic lab, but, but that, that's not the case. But for the most part, outside of the, the, the actual lab instruments, the fictional shows on TV take a lot of liberties. So usually a forensic scientist is not also out there investigating a crime. So those are just a few of the things that are slightly different. Well, it's an incredible field, and I know it is a fast-moving field. Technology is growing quickly. What led you to your interest in this area? Well, there were two things that happened to me. I had graduated from college with a degree in teaching science. And so I was in my first year of teaching science, teaching biology and, and algebra. And there were a couple of things that happened to me. First, 
it's it's a little crazy, but a guy that I went to high school with who sat beside of me for three years in uh, in a class um, was a serial killer. <laughs> oh my goodness! And he started killing his victims uh, while I was teaching high school, and then they eventually caught him. And my students they they were using this new technology called forensic DNA testing was going to be used to show, you know, that he was, you know, committed these crimes. And so my students were like, what is this DNA testing? And I'm like, wow, you know, this sounds pretty cool. I don't know. Let me. So I started investigating what DNA testing was all about so that I could talk to my students about it. And then later there was this guy named OJ Simpson who became infamous for the the murders of his ex-wife and and, uh, Ron Goldman. And that really sparked me to to get into the field because it was such a fascinating examination of how forensic science was working at the time and and what all was being done, the DNA testing, uh, presentations in court. And I thought, "Ah, this is a really cool field I think I want to get into. So that's what really inspired me to, to move beyond teaching and get into forensics. And really my plan was only to go to college for a couple of years and get my master's degree and then start doing actual cases. But I kind of got um, hooked on the research and, uh, and, and publishing and presenting at meetings. And so that's where my, my life has sort of taken me. I never really got to the point where I was in the lab doing a lot of cases per se, but just sort of uh, really getting into the field because of those two things that happened to my life. What an incredibly interesting segue into your profession. Okay, this is an aside, but I have to ask it. Did this guy in high school, did he act kind of weird or was he a normal guy? He was a little weird. And and he would he would uh, say things that were just kind of like off the wall, and you know we just kind of thought, oh well, that's just Carl. We really didn't think that much of it, but yeah, uh, it turns out um, he he fortunately he he was caught before he could commit. He committed two murders, but the kind of um, uh, the just the the things that he did to the bodies after the, he had killed these two young women really put him in that category. If he had not been caught, he would have continued. Uh, thank goodness for the DNA evidence and that type of science that they can do now. Now, just a quick look at the website for the Center for Human Identification. And I strongly recommend our listeners go there. It's so interesting. It leaves a person very impressed. And I'm sure that looking at the website doesn't really grasp the total depth of all that you do in helping law enforcement and other agencies. Can you give us an idea of what is done at the center? Yeah, absolutely. So unlike other laboratories in the U.S., we're fairly unique. And the first is we're based out of a university. There are only a handful of crime labs that are actually based out of a university setting, but we are at the moment the only lab in the U.S. that's, again, based at a university that has access to the CODIS, to the National DNA Database. And and the other thing is we only do forensic DNA testing 
And we also do forensic anthropology. So we don't do other disciplines like ballistics or voice pattern or digital forensics. We, we only focus on forensic anthropology and forensic DNA testing. We have several units that are comprise the Center for Human Identification. First, the very important unit is the evidence unit. So we take evidence from law enforcement. We receive evidence from, say, missing persons investigations and so forth. And we catalog those and put them into our system so that we can track where that evidence is at any point in time. And then we have our anthropology unit, which, again, for skeletal remains, they're able to do investigations so to determine things like trauma and so forth. And so they'll do a full service of forensic anthropology investigations. And then we have a couple of casework units. For example, we have, first of all, our missing persons unit. And so the missing persons unit they investigate cases that involve usually skeletal remains. And so these are typically missing and unidentified human remains. So any skeletal remains that are found within the border of Texas can be sent to us, and we will do the DNA testing for free. And as I mentioned before, we have access to CODIS, which is our national DNA database. And so we can upload these DNA profiles into CODIS. And for missing persons investigations, most of the time, you're trying to identify this individual by finding parents of the missing individual or a wife and children that can help to identify, say, the missing male individual. So we have that CODIS unit that's, that's uploading profiles into CODIS and trying to make those matches. We also have a criminal casework unit. So we call this our forensic unit. They will do crime scene cases. Usually we work about 85% of our cases that we work are sexual assault cases. So this is in association with assisting the Texas Department of Public Safety and helping them get rid of their sexual assault backlog. Of course, the huge number of sexual assault kits that are just sitting on shelves and evidence rooms, sheriff's offices, police, law enforcement. It's a huge number. And so by law, we're now testing those kits, and that's an overwhelming, it's a lot of work. So we're helping in that respect. We're helping the Texas DPS with helping them get rid of their backlog. We also do other cases like homicides and so forth, burglaries, that kind of thing. But but for the most part, the real brunt of our focus is with the sexual assault kits. And then another unit that is important to what we do is our research group. So we do have a very vibrant, active research group that are looking at new technologies, new methods, new things that can help, of course, improve the, the time the cost, reduce the cost, increase how quick can we get a profile? What are some new things to could be better? So we're we're constantly researching and we do publish quite a bit. We're one of the most published labs when it comes to forensic DNA research in the US. So we're amongst the top two or three every year. 
And then finally, I'd like to mention we are, are planning in the next few months, probably around April or so, we're planning to create a brand new unit or to our lab, which will be our forensic genetic genealogy. So that's, of course, using the genealogy in which you're looking at, instead of very close relatives, you can potentially identify someone by looking at distant relatives. So looking at second and third cousins, this is kind of like the case in California with the Golden State serial killer, where they were able to identify him by looking at not the CODIS database, but looking at private databases like what's the most popular one is called GEDmatch, where people will upload their results from their own genealogy test into this third-party database. And that database is people understand when you put your DNA in there, your SNP profile, when you put that in there, that it can be looked at by law enforcement agencies. And so, uh, so that's something we're planning to bring on. We think that this is going to be a huge service to the state of Texas, and we're hoping that it can help solve a lot of these cases where you have the guy who committed some crime, like a sexual assault some years ago, but he's not done anything that's got him in CODIS. So uh, he's not hitting. And so it just it sits there in CODIS and there's no resolution. We could potentially identify that perpetrator by uh, looking at the genealogy at some point here in the future. Are there a variety of different technologies that you use for these units, or is it the same technology used for different purposes? It's a little bit of both. Like, for example, the missing persons, where it's usually skeletal remains, and typically if those remains are kind of older, like from a case from 20, 30 years ago, and so all you have left is the skeletal remains, we have made some improvements in the extraction, getting DNA out of these old bones to the point where we can use the same technology that we use in the sexual assault cases. So we're, we're looking at the very same technologies in both, but there are some differences, like for example, the missing persons uh, will typically look at other marker systems like mitochondrial DNA, which is passed from mother to daughter uh, or mother to child. So, but it's only passed along the maternal lineage. So only mothers will pass their mitochondria down the, the maternal line via their daughters, but men have mitochondria too. They just don't pass their mitochondria down. So that's a, a marker that our missing persons unit will also examine because oftentimes, again, if the bone is really, really degraded and really in poor shape, you may only be able to get mitochondrial results. Mm. Incredible. Did the tragedies of 9-11 and the Oklahoma bombing help to speed up the advancement that the field of DNA technology has undergone since then? I, I think so. I mean, I think that there were certainly some things that were done. I know that, for example, in the, the tragedy of 9-11, uh, if you think about the considerable amount of heat that was generated not only from the fires of of the plane burning, but also like in the New York City with the collapse of the Twin Towers, it generates a lot of heat as as that building is collapsing, and and that is not good 
for DNA. Heat can really, really inhibit your ability to get a good STR or DNA profile. And so there were some things that were done after that 9-11 is uh, we, we created what we call mini or miniaturized STR. So we, we use this type of marker called short tandem repeats or STR. And I actually did a, a postdoc with Dr. John Butler, who basically helped to create these new STR assays that were very small, very short fragments that could amplify very degraded DNA. So there were some things that came out of, of that uh, tragedy that really did help in, in the identification of, of remains that we're, we still use today. So yes, it was quite a, a tragedy, uh, but I think the forensic field, we learned a lot about these um, very challenging samples from that tragedy. Now, you were the research director at the U.S. Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory, supporting U.S. efforts to identify the remains of servicemen killed in Vietnam and other wars. First of all, thank you so much for your service. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be doing. How have the advances in the DNA sciences also resulted in advancements with this type of identification? Yes, I really value the time that I was with the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab. We call it AFDIL for short. Of course, you know, military, you have to have an acronym for everything. So <laughs> uh, so at, at AFDIL, the lab is run by one military head, a colonel, and everyone else that works in the lab is civilian. So we were not military members ourselves, but you know, we did have that mission to help identify servicemen, not only those killed current day, but those that were killed in previous wars. And there was a lot of research. I, I'm quite proud of all the work that's been done there at that lab before my time, and, and it's continuing to be done there with the mission of trying to identify these service members from years past. Again, we were sort of instrumental in identifying or helping to create protocols, procedures that will help extract DNA from very tiny amounts of material. You often think about, well, why is the military interested in a famous case like the Romanovs, as we'll talk about later? We, we did some of the testing for the Romanovs. Well, these family members were buried in Siberia, and about 10 months of the year, it, it's usually the soil is around freezing. So if there are technologies that we can use to help get DNA from a bone that's been in the ground for 100 years that's pretty much around freezing, well, that also helps for those service members who die, uh, whether it's a training accident in Alaska or else, you know, somewhere elsewhere around the world where the remains have been buried and cold for a long time. So, so there is a lot of advances that have been made in forensic DNA testing from doing this kind of work. Well, being an Army brat, and also an Army spouse for many, many years until my husband retired. It's, it's in my blood, and that kind of thing is certainly near and dear to my heart. And I, as I say, I appreciate your efforts. Those mean so much to so many people. You know, I neglected to ask you when we were talking about 9-11 and the Oklahoma bombing, did, were you involved directly with any of that identification? I was working at the time at AFDIL when 9-11 happened. I, 
I do remember that day very vividly. I lived at the time in Arlington County, and which is, of course, one of the sites, the Pentagon, where, uh, where the attacks occurred. It turns out that day I wasn't feeling well that morning, so I decided I would just stay home for the day, and I was able to see, watch everything happen on TV. But being in research, there was usually a prohibition about people in research being able to do casework. But because this was such a, a huge mass disaster, because our laboratory, we processed the cases of the flight that crashed in Pennsylvania and the Pentagon, the plane that hit the Pentagon. So we were tasked with identifying the victims from those two locations. And so at that point, it was all hands on deck. So yes, I spent some time in the lab. The one thing that I could do that was not really getting in the way was helping to extract DNA from the bones. And so we we would set up reactions where I would help with the extraction of the DNA and then hand that off to the other folks who were, you know, had the more experience with the the actual DNA testing. You had mentioned the unit that's going to start with the ancestry DNA. That means that you will not have to rely on commercial DNA outfits like Ancestry or 23andMe, correct? I mean, I, I'm assuming those have legal ramifications. You can't just go in and check the DNA of all of their DNA sources. Am I right? That's right. Yes. They prohibit the use of their databases for law enforcement searches and so forth. So there's a third party company, uh, if you will, called GEDmatch. And that is, let's say, the, the reason it came into existence was this. So, Susan, let's say you and I, we don't know it, but you and I are cousins, and you're trying to do your genealogy, and you have some hint that there may be some cousins that are missing, but you're just not sure where they are. So you send your DNA off to 23andMe. Now, here I am, your long-lost cousin, and I send my DNA off to Ancestry. We will never find one another. Because the private databases like 23andMe and Ancestry, they don't share their customers with other customers. So if we were ever to find one another, it would have to be because you independently put your SNP profile up into GEDmatch, and I load my SNP profile up into GEDmatch, and lo and behold, we find one another now. So that third-party database, and you know, there's a little bit of controversy because at first they quote unquote let opted everyone in, so everybody was automatically that was in GEDmatch could now be searched, and so they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, some people may not want their profiles searched by law enforcement, so then they kicked everybody out, and now you have to click a box in order to join. GEDmatch to say that, you know, look, law enforcement may search. Is it okay? You have to check yes. There is a private company, Family Tree, that will let law enforcement search, but it's, again, people have to opt in. That's the key. They don't want this stuff happening uh, without people knowing that their relatives could be identified. So, yes, this Third-party database GEDmatch is the way that most of these cases that are being solved by genealogy, the way that they're uh, solving them is by using 
Gen Match. Well, I love to read science fiction. So this is probably a question that comes from the way that my brain works. I had just read an article about some company that had been awarded uh, funding to uh, clone the dodo bird, the extinct dodo bird. I don't know if you've read about that. Okay, with all of our DNA information off. Are we going to, is someone going to clone an army out of, you know, a hundred thousand Susans, God forbid? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get, I mean, I imagine one day we may get to that point, but I, I think that there's just a lot more to making a human than just having a, a test, you know, a test tube or whatever and putting the DNA from whatever human or, or dodo bird or whatever, the process. It's a lot more complex, although the technology seems to be moving faster than I think we can think at the moment. So that's the scary thing is that the, uh, you know, I, I loved I, when, when the book Jurassic Park came out, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. I loved that book. I, I read it two or three times. And one of the characters in that book, Ian Malcolm, he's the sort of the mathematician philosopher. He's kind of like questioning, like, you know, you you can, you know, you have the technology that you can do it. But did you ever did you ever ask yourself why? Why should we be doing this? You know, why should we bring bringing back dinosaurs? Is that really a good idea? So again, a lot of the science and the, the sort of the ethics around this is really moving much faster than what we're the pace we're usually used to moving. Yeah, why sounds like a very important word in the world of science in in any aspect of science. What am I doing and why am I doing it? Although I'm sure that you have to weigh the good and the bad. There's been so many wonderful things that have come out of so many advancements in science. Now, since arriving at the center, you have been instrumental in furthering the training efforts to reduce human trafficking by assisting on a grant from the U.S. State Department to train forensic scientists in Central America. I've been trying to figure out how what you do fits in with that, with human trafficking. So can you tell us how the science of DNA forensics and the Center for Human Identification is helping in this area? Well, usually if someone is a victim of human trafficking, there are other biometrics that can really help identify people quickly, fingerprints, iris scans, and things like that. But the problem is you don't typically have those kind of databases already established. DNA could also be used. Of course, DNA can be used for human identification. And I think one of the things that makes DNA attractive for for a project like this is that unlike your iris or your fingerprints, DNA can be used to identify your relatives. So for example, if a young girl is a victim of human trafficking and her parents have not heard from her, if they could give their DNA and put it in a database like CODIS, and it's sort of sitting there. And then if this young victim is identified or unfortunately uh, dies during the crossing coming into the U.S., we could 
identify her remains because we have the families that have given their DNA to help identify their daughter. That's part of the goal is to help in those kinds of cases like that. It's usually not necessarily a proactive. It's not, again, it, it would require, honestly, if we wanted to do this correctly, it would require a compulsory, everyone gives their DNA, you know, at birth or, or you know, at some point your DNA is collected and put in a database and then a simple blood stick or, or a buckle swab, a swab of your cheek cells, and we could identify you no matter when. But of course, we don't have that. So what we're trying to do in Central America is to help them first get their capabilities up to speed so that they can do this kind of testing. You know, there's not to say that they're not already. It's just that we're helping them with improving their processes, improving their understanding, improving the way that they are generating DNA profiles, and, and also helping them understand CODIS, the software that we use when, when I say we. So we use it in the U.S., but it's also used all around the world. Now, the countries around the world are not connected, so we can't look into El Salvador's CODIS database from the U.S., but, but helping them understand and, and help them to efficiently use CODIS in these kinds of investigations is one of the things that we're doing. So we're basically trying to help them get up to speed, help them in that effort of identifying, especially missing persons, because you know we do have several cases. I, I will mention one of the unique things that we do have at the uh, CHI is we have a copy of the CODIS software. It is a standalone computer. It's not connected to the outside world, but we, we call this the humanitarian version of CODIS. So it's not used for criminal searches. It's simply used for humanitarian databasing. So we have identified or we have created DNA profiles from 5,000 at the moment. There are 5,000 remains that have been processed that are individuals who have died crossing into the U.S. that are found on Texas soil. We're trying to work with these countries in Central America that they could provide us with family references so that we can start making those associations and then be able to give them their child back. And so that's one of the things that we're doing through this effort is trying to help and that kind of humanitarian effort to identify missing and unknown individuals. I can only imagine the care that must be taken, not only in the handling of the evidence you receive, but also in the results. So much rides on the accuracy of it, both forensics and in this identification, it's quite a responsibility. Yes, it is. And, you know, that's one thing that really, I think, again, sets us apart is that we are accredited. And so that means we go through the process of accreditation. And so we're recognized as a functional crime lab. We follow the rules. We get audited every couple of years. And, and then in the off years, we have our own internal audits. And so, so yeah, we really make sure that what we're doing is is good science. And if we find out that we're 
you know, not necessarily doing something bad, but like little slight improvements that we can make along the way. We certainly make those as well. You mentioned that you have a research and development unit. Is there something currently going on that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to mention about the future for DNA science and technology? We have quite a few things happening in that unit. So we, we've been doing a lot of research over the years with the rapid DNA instruments. So there are these instruments that typically, let's just say a crime happens at you know, seven o'clock in the morning and we want to develop a profile, a DNA profile that we can search in CODIS as quickly as possible. Well, if we were to stop everything we're doing and we only focus on this one case, and if we start at, let's say, eight o'clock in the morning, the evidence comes to our lab, we can have a DNA profile uploaded into CODIS in about eight hours after we go through the whole process of extracting the DNA, amplifying the DNA, separating it, interpreting it. And of course, there's all kinds of, as you mentioned before, the things that we have to do when we're handling evidence and, and the results and the accuracy. We have people that are checking our results, so we have double checking and so forth. So that's about eight to 10 hours. Well, there are now these instruments that you basically take a swab, you put it into the instrument, and boom, 45 minutes to an hour later, you got a result. Wow. And you could potentially upload that into CODIS. Let's give us another 30 minutes. So about an hour and a half from start to finish, you've got a profile that you can now search into CODIS. And so we've been doing a lot of research in that. We're really interested in taking this to the next level where, for example, we have, let's say, a mass disaster where a building collapses and we have 20 or 30 victims. And so it's unfortunate to think about these things, but things like this happen where we could, you know, the family members have come, uh, we could take references from the family members. And then as the bodies are recovered, we could quickly get a DNA profile, not have to wait several days or weeks and we could give the family answer by the end of the day, that kind of thing. So we're, we're doing some research in that area. I mentioned the whole genealogy thing that we're doing. We also are creating software. We're, we're doing things to help with the analysis on that. So we've got, we've got several things going on. I'm very proud of our research group. They are really a dynamic group of people that do great work. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like that's something that's going to make a big difference for a lot of people. I had the absolute pleasure of attending the lecture that you gave for Ollie on the Romanoff children. You were the lead scientist of the American team working to identify the remains found in Russia, specifically to determine if they belong to the Romanoff family. And just to give a brief historical reminder for the listeners, during the Russian Revolution of 1917, Bolshevik revolutionaries toppled the monarchy, ending the Romanov dynasty. The discovery of a mass grave in 1991 resulted in the identification of 
the remains belonging to members of the Romanov family, including Tsar Nicholas II, but not two of his children. Can you discuss the discovery of additional remains that were recovered in 2007 and your involvement with the forensic DNA identification of the two missing children? It, it was interesting. The Bolsheviks at the time, their plan was to completely cremate all of the remains so that there was nothing left. They actually hired an expert who was an expert in cremation. But unfortunately for them, or maybe fortunately for us, he broke his leg. He fell off of his horse and broke his leg. So he wasn't able to come to help the Bolsheviks with this task. So the Bolsheviks thought, well, how hard is it? I mean, just get some gas, get some gasoline, get some sulfuric acid, and then we'll do it ourselves. Well, they pulled two bodies that they thought they thought was the son, Alexei, and his mother, the Tsarina Alexandra. Unfortunately, it wasn't the mother. It was actually one of the sisters, Maria. And so they they tried all night to cremate these two sets of remains, and it turns out they weren't very successful. Well, they were mostly successful. They probably destroyed about 90% of their bodies, but there was still some skeletal remains left. And so because it took all night, now it was the next morning, they were afraid that, that people from around the surrounding area would find out what's going on. So they just buried the rest of the bodies in this mass grave. So there were two children that were missing from that mass grave that was first discovered in 1991. And so they decided after this discovery and after the DNA testing that they would try to find the two missing children. So starting in the mid-1990s, every year they would go out again, Siberia, 10 months of the year, the ground is frozen. So you got a couple months, June, July, that the ground is soft enough that you can maybe do some investigations, but they never found these two missing children. So eventually they went back and this one little group of guys who were trying to find the, the missing children, they went back and they started from scratch. They started from the beginning and they eventually were able to find in 2007 the remnants of these two children. There were only about 40 bone or teeth fragments that were left. And if you consider you have over 200 bones in your body and there were two people there. So instead of having 400 and some bones, there were only 40 there. Uh, so, And most of those bones were really too small for DNA testing. So of those 40 bones, there were probably only about 10 that were big enough that you could do DNA testing. And so it was through the testing, we, we were quite fortunate, I have to say. We had a piece of the leg bone from Alexi, the son, and a piece of a leg bone from Maria, one of the daughters. And we were fortunate in that those two pieces of bone were able to give us very good results so that we could make that association. That's an incredible story. And as, as I said in the introduction, I know Disney made a movie. I know a lot of people have come forward and said, I am the, you know, I am the missing Romanov child and whatever. You've, <laughs> you've dashed those, <laughs> those, <laughs> you know, those imposters. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, 
uh, not so much now, although it does happen occasionally, but especially back after we made this, we published our results in 2008. For about, I'd say probably about seven or eight years, I would get an email at least once or twice a month. Oh, my grandmother told me the story of how she was able to escape. And, oh, if you only test my DNA, you'll sh- <laughs> it'll show that my grandmother, you know, was was uh, uh, was Anastasia. And uh, so, you know, I would I would get a lot of those emails. A lot of people were convinced that they were one of the missing Romanov children. And quite frankly, the czar, Tsar Nicholas II, was the richest man in the world back in the early 1900s. Every diamond, every ruby, every emerald, every piece of gold and silver that came out of a mine in Russia belonged to him. So he was quite wealthy, and he had deposited a lot of his wealth in three banks in England, New York, and Switzerland. And if you could show that you were a descendant, if you were the son or daughter uh, you were set to inherit this money that's still sitting in these banks. Um, Mike, I think you need to test my DNA. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'll get those emails coming again. So <laughs> I can understand that. Well, as we close, I just have to ask you, are there any other cases that were particularly interesting to you? Or is there anything that we have failed to talk about in what you're doing that you think the listeners might like to hear about? Well, I will say one the one case that I worked on when I was back at Aftil that was really fascinating to me. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a happy ending, but um, the poet, famous poet Frederick Schiller, who was a German poet, he and a playwright. He wrote Robin Hood. He was very beloved by German immigrants coming to America. They had lots of love for Schiller. There are lots of statues of Schiller all over the U.S. Anywhere you have a huge German immigrant population, you probably have a, a statue of Schiller or a bust of Schiller in a local park. He and his friend Goethe were two of the most famous German playwrights, although I know, my German mother-in-law told me that Goethe is the most famous, but Schiller is the most loved by the German people. When Schiller died, he was in Weimar, where Goethe lived, and he, because he wasn't from that, that village, he didn't have a family grave. So they just buried him in a... You know, Basically, it was a common grave. And so they felt like, you know, 20 years later, they're like, you know, maybe we should do something a little special for Schiller. He's quite a big deal. And so they went out to dig up some remains and they thought they found his skull. And it was just a, it's in a, like a comedy of errors. And so they kept doing all these exhumation, exhumations and they thought they had Schiller's skull, so they buried Schiller's skull beside of Goethe when they, you know, after Goethe died. And so they had asked us, the German Weimar government had asked us to help. Our, we have a, a lab that's in Austria that was doing much of this work, but we were asked to help. And it turns out the, the skull that they buried did not belong to Schiller. So we, we don't know where Schiller is, but oh. uh, it was it was quite a fascinating story of, of the uh, all of the testing that we had to do to try to identify who is Frederick Schiller. We know who he is. We, we pretty much know his profile, but we just don't have a body to go with it at, the, at this moment. So 
Well, that story is probably not over yet. You, yeah. I imagine you've got more work to do on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. What a great conversation this has been. I think every aspect of what you do is incredibly fascinating. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with us and uh, come and share it again at Ollie. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate it. And I also would like to just thank all of my coworkers at the Center for Human Identification. They really are the unsung heroes. Again, it's our mission to help put a name to the unidentified and missing. And again, we also do a lot of this sort of criminal case work where we're able to hopefully identify the perpetrators of serious crimes and give victims justice. So I think it's a, a huge, important mission that we do. And, it, and I'm quite an honor to, to be the director. Absolutely. Without a doubt, it's incredibly important. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Michael Koble. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.